Today's conversation is all about student accessibility and how we can innovate around it. I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Jill Wright, Illinois Central College's AVP of Assessment, Accreditation, and Academic Services. Let's jump right into it. In the lead up to this conversation, I learned, Jill, that you got your PhD at the age of 22. I would love to start by just a little bit of your life's journey from PhD at age 22 through to your role today. Um, maybe we could start there. <laughs> okay, let's start there. So I was a very young graduate and it came off of a not so successful high school career because I was told by my high school counselor that I should just go be a secretary. And I didn't think that worked well because I couldn't type and I couldn't use a copy machine. And the fax was just being invented and that seemed beyond me. So anyhow, I got my PhD at a very young age and worked for medical school for a while teaching medical ethics. And then I went into an office environment after that when I moved back to my hometown. And I became very interested in what we call today CQI. At the time, it was TQM. And that whole quality journey and that continuous strive for CQI, quality improvement, and then meeting the customer where they're at and meeting the demands of the customer became fascinating to me. And I learned quickly that in order to meet the demands of a customer, you have to be not only available and ready, but you have to listen. And you have to be open to new and innovative ideas. And so often that innovation is something that I think educators need to really pay attention to. And so it was innovation that really took me to the journey that I'm at today because I kept hearing how we were doing things, we were doing things. And in education, I felt like we were still doing things like in the 1980s when I was in school. And I thought, well, why has everything else changed except education? seems like we haven't changed as quickly as the rest of the market. And so it was that innovative edge that really pushed me to keep going and keep going and keep going and really always be open to new ideas and always explore things and really listen to what the customer is saying versus interpreting what the customer is saying to say, well, here's what we have for you. This is what you want. No, 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 no. This is what you want. This is what you desire. So let's see how we can get that done with you. And so that that's kind of always been a, an interesting way for me is I continually look for innovation and continually want to be around people who are innovating. I love this conversation topic for a few reasons. I think one of the things that I, I always found kind of humorous is that Elon Musk always says he thinks one of the biggest issues now that's facing humanity is the decline in the birth rate. And in, mm -hmm. one of the few areas where I think Elon Musk and higher ed sort of converge in their narrative around things is that so many institutions now are recognizing that the enrollment crisis is more than is really something that come 2025, 2026 is mm -hmm. really going to hit everyone very hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's it's fascinating to me that a lot of the innovators which I, I've seen largely are community colleges are really thinking about careers in a lot more of a deliberate way. A lot of the innovation that I see happening is, that, is the way that community colleges are thinking about innovating on curriculum. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, Jill, any advice for folks on how to think about actually innovating curriculum, how to think about innovating or using data to better align schedules or curriculum processes mm -hmm. or whatever that may look for this 2025-2026 future? What does that look like? Well, I, th I think that looks a whole lot different than what we're doing now. 
And I think with that, so let me let me kind of dice this in a couple different ways. First, let's talk about um, innovating curriculum. One of the things that I I believe community colleges used to be married to is the fact that we had to create two year degree programs. Oh no, we don't. By the time you create a two year program, you're already lagging because if you go through all the systems, it's going to take you a minimum of one year, if not two. So you started a program that you needed two years ago, and now you're waiting two years to get it approved, and then you're going to offer it. So right already you're four years behind. Stop it. The workforce has passed you by. And so I think one of the things that community colleges are, are starting to do with high-impact practices is they're starting to now turn away toward what we would call non-credit curriculums. Because non-credit curriculums, you don't need any approval for. So you can put them in your non-credit realm, get them offered, get them scaled, and kind of pilot it to see if it works. And then while it's while you're in that non-credit phase and getting that workforce trained at a very fast, rapid, very fast, rapid pace, and you're no longer married to semesters, you're no longer married to quarters, you're no longer married to trimesters, whatever system you're on, you're no longer married to that. You can offer them on demand. So which means you no longer have to worry about, we're only gonna start this program on August 16th. The world doesn't stop and start on semesters. We're not gonna offer this program during the summer. There's nowhere else in life you get summers off except higher ed. <laughs> There's nowhere in life that you get a, spring, a scheduled spring break. There's nowhere in life that you, <laughs> I mean, let's just face it, that doesn't happen in the workforce. Yep. But, and so now let me dice this a second way when it comes to data. So I think community colleges are doing a really good job of really thinking about how what data is out there that they have access to. We have access to, let me go backwards a little bit. We have access to clearinghouse data. Clearinghouse data is good data, but it's laggy. We have access to iPads. Could there be any worse data set in the world? I can say that because I'm retired. <laughs> I'm sure you know what iPads is. And could there be yeah. any more tomfoolery going on with data? You know, it only records first-time, full-time students. Stop that. That tells us nothing. It tells us absolutely nothing about a first-time, full-time student. Community colleges now know we are serving at a much quicker rate than full-time. We're serving part-time students at a much quicker rate than full-time students. We also know we've studied our demographic. Our demographic is not an 18-year-old out of high school. The largest demographic in community colleges today, wait for it, wait for it, dual credit students. Mm. It used to be the returning adult. Now dual credit is outpacing because legislation is nearly across all 50 states about serving dual credit students. But let's go back to the fast-paced work programs. With dual credit students, we know they're still on the schedule of 16-week semesters with the summer off. Great. That's what school's about at that age. Hmm. But when you think about these fast-paced work-based programs, we're looking now at leading data. We're looking at labor statistic data. We're looking at what companies are telling us they need. You know, first of all, it was about what the great retirement, you know, with baby boomers now, it's about the great resignation, right? Yep. yep. It's about the great resignation. Before the great resignation in between the great retirement and the great resignation, we had the great uptake, uptick in, I want to retool, I want to reskill. So we're staying on top of that data and we're looking toward the companies that are innovating 
And most community colleges are developing small business hubs and innovation centers, or they're partnering with a large community on innovation center. Mm. And that's where they're running their workforce programs. Now we're going one step further. We're running workforce equity initiative programs, Mm. which really then begins to serve all of the population versus the part of the population that's always had access because it's no longer just about access. That used to be our old platform. It's now about equity. It's about equity. How do we continue to serve the population, make sure it's equitable for all populations and make sure we serve students with the resources they need to get through? One of the things that I found really interesting is I see so many community colleges and um, other colleges thinking about lifelong learning. I had two really interesting insights from my exploration into this. So one of them, I loved what you said about equity. So one of the things that I realized early on about Course Dog was that if Course Dog actually succeeded at its goals to improve operational efficiency and ideally help schools to graduate students faster, by nature, if you really could do that really well, ultimately the outcome would be equity. It would be in some mm-hmm. sense, uh, even socioeconomic equality. So it's really funny to me that I think a lot of the times historically we've been thinking about higher ed as higher ed, but to me, if higher ed really succeeds, it succeeds in equity, right? Because yes. it's able to succeed in issues of affordability and access, yes. uh, which I've just always found one day, I remember, a few years ago, I was like, wait a second, this is act, this company is actually about equity, which I just found really interesting that that's an insight that I think community colleges have recognized, but not that all universities have recognized yet. The second thing that I was interested in when I started to, you know, really dive into lifelong learning was a lot of my questions were actually around, like, would I, if I go to back to my college to get additional learning, or would I, you know, go take an online class at ICC. And I'm just curious about when you think about lifelong learning and you think about that equity and more types of students that ICC, you know, can attract, how do you think about creating unique, something that's unique enough that they would, will take a class at ICC versus at some other institution? Like I just, I, I, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about was even in my job, like would I upskill my employees? And like, I honestly was kind of unsure, like would I unskill my employees on higher ed versus like just training them stuff. And I'd just be curious about how you're thinking about this. Well, I think lifelong learning is a goal for many of us that have remained current in our workforce. And I don't think lifelong learning is just about credit programs. Mm. And I think lifelong learning is about ensuring that you continually grow along a career path that you need and you continually stay current on the technologies that you need, on the conversations that you need, on the project management that you need. And so I think often, I think universities and community colleges do this alike. I really do. Because, and I think what they do is, if you've noticed from most universities and community colleges, they have professional development initiatives that continually go on and they partner with companies to do this. And I will say this out loud. I often think, when we send employees back to 16 week or eight week classes, we do nothing but stifle them. Yeah. I think it's too slow. Yeah. Nothing moves at a 16 week pace except in education. Yeah. And I think I'm a lifelong learner. I've taken a lot of courses since I finished my formal education. Those have never been offered in 16 week formats because that would bore me. 
I'm not interested in something that takes that long. I'm busy. So get it done now and just give it to me, force feed it to me fast and I'll get it done fast. And I also think this whole issue of lifelong learning, we have more opportunities now more than ever for employees and just lifelong owners, just people who are simply curious like me, like I'm always, I'm a very curious person. And so one of the things I want to do, I know this seems really, really dumb, but I want to take like a a rudimentary chemistry class to learn how the pesticides work on my farm fields. Isn't that goofy? Mm. But I'm not going to go back and take a 16 week chemistry class, but I have an opportunity to do that not just through the college or the university down the street now, I think the pandemic has changed everything. Mm. Because I think we have seen avenues, especially in higher education and perhaps in corporate training as well. I think corporations were well ahead of higher ed. But where we now know we don't have to do everything in person and that's okay. And so I think we're no longer place bound in terms of you know lifelong learning like, oh, And I think it opens up the door for more people to take advantage of lifelong learning because it becomes cheaper when things are conducted on Zoom. It becomes cheaper when you can use WebEx or whatever you're using. And I don't think that we could have, higher ed would have scaled it and got there as fast had it not been for a pandemic. But I think lifelong learning is something that we will continue to grow and work on as higher ed, especially as we see, we've got to find a market. We've got X number of employees and we know the birth rate has gone down. So we've got to find a market and we're going to find a niche. We're going to find our way to get into that niche market. And if we don't, we won't be able to serve the the community as we need to. So lifelong learning is exciting. And I don't think it's, it's no longer place bound. Yeah. And I think it's so mission aligned the way that you describe it, where it's not only about educating the surrounding community, but about supporting your existing operations to make sure mm-hmm. that your existing students are successful given this enrollment cliff. So I, I think that makes mm-hmm. sense. One question I'd be curious, Jill, you shared with me before before we started the call today that you're gearing up for retirement. That's got to be incredibly exciting. I'd love to just hear what level of optimism do you have about the future of, of higher education in the, in the United States, you know, from getting a PhD at 22 now to heading into retirement, what makes you optimistic or what makes you cautious about the future? Oh, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think we have some very exciting opportunities for those who are pursuing education. And I also think one of the things that we're going to see with higher ed that I think is going to continue to morph is we're no longer going to be degree bound, if that makes any sense. I think that we're going to see um, the emergence of more credentials versus degrees. Because I just don't think that many, I think that the appetite for a four-year degree that gets done in four years is diminishing. I think the appetite is now more of a menu selection. You know, I'll go here and take a little of this. I'll go here and take a little of that. I'll go here and take a little of this. And I'm going to finish up here. I think that's the appetite that America has right now. You know, they, I want to go and get what I need from this institution and go to a different institution. We're no longer, it's just like the worker, right? We no longer have 30 year workers for companies. We no longer, we, we are phasing out of a four year student. And I think, you know, when people talk about, well, that's a four year plan or that's a two year plan. I think that I'm very optimistic that higher ed's going to keep moving away from that train because People aren't committed to those timeframes anymore. I'm also optimistic about the new programming that's going to take place in higher ed. I'm 
When I got a PhD, it was a content PhD. We didn't have what I would call skills-based or competency-based PhDs. My PhD is in rhetoric and composition. Come on. <laughs> that and a quarter, get you a cup of coffee. Nine more is five bucks. That's how much the economy has changed. But that being said, we had to create our own competencies, right? Like nobody had a shingle out that said PhD in, in rhetoric and composition wanted apply within. I had to create my own competencies. And that's how I got into CQI. And so I think now what's happening with higher ed is we see more applied degrees, which is exactly what we need because people can apply that skill set. They have knowledge, they can apply a skill set and they can get a job. So I, I think higher ed is turning to turning into that type of learning environment, which I think is necessary. I also think higher ed is turning into an environment where we actualize that students are no longer committed to buying these overpriced textbooks. And this open educational resource and creative commons has really caught on. You know, I can remember being a poor first-generation farm girl from little bitty Canton, Illinois. Um, for, you know, I was from a family of five. God love my parents. We all finished high school. We were the first family to do so in both sides of the family. And we all went to college and we all did remarkably well after being told to either, you know, be a secretary or go be a farmer like your father. But I can remember going into the bookstore at, at that time at the small college that I went to, and my math book was $87. I didn't have $87. And so I think one of the things higher ed is turning to is, you know, why are we saddling students not only with exorbitant college debt, but why I see this whole movement toward open educational resources and creative content where we're no longer married to the $200 math textbook, or we're no longer married to the $150 history textbook that changes in addition every two years. And there's only, you know, a few words in a different chapter that have changed. And so that's where I see the path of higher ed is going. And I see more and more companies then taking that and innovating it. Mm. Saying, if you're going to go to OER or you're going to go to Creative Commons, let's help you find that content. So let's partner with you to get you the content that your students need. I think that's a really innovative path. And I think higher ed is taking a turn there. I'd just be curious about how, you know, you talked a little bit about workforce alignment, about how you'd respond to folks that are very, that have strong opinions about what education should be that perhaps are different than direct alignment with skills or with today's skills or today's workforce needs. Well, I think that, I have a liberal arts education yeah. and I think that to me, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. I think that you can, we need to teach, we, you don't teach critical thinking. I don't know how you could ever teach that. Instead, <laughs> what you, <laughs> how do you teach that? Today, <laughs> students, we're going to learn critical thinking, right? Yeah. Tomorrow, we'll be learning creative problem solving. Those are skills that we want in workers. And those skills are not immeasurable. Those skills may not necessarily be assessed through a standardized test that you can take 17 times until you measure. Those skills are assessed and best measured over time. And I think that those types of skills are skills that you can still achieve even in work-based educational programs. You give it through the types of projects that are assigned. Yep. When we go to work, right? I mean, Justin, you started a company. Nobody said, you knew by year one, here's the things that I want to achieve, right? Oh. 
you had a business plan and you had a you had a project plan. They were not the same thing. Totally. Right. And so to me, even in these skills-based higher ed degrees that are out there, we teach project management, but we teach the rudiments of project management. You mm-hmm. still have to have a creative project to put in there. You still have to have an innovative project to put in. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. And I can remember the first time I had to write a resume. I thought, boy, what are my skills? Right? Like I can write the heck out of a paper. I've written a lot of those. But then you just really have to think about, okay, hold on. I do have a skill set. You know, my skill set is that I work well with people. My skill set is that I'm able to take a project from the start to the finish and know the demarcations Mm. and and measure outcomes. And so I think it's all about how you write your measures. You know, we often hear people say, if you can't measure it, it didn't really happen. Well, sometimes you just measure it by outcomes and you measure by demarcations in the calendar. Yes, we did that by this date. We did that by this date. Now, because then there's a whole separate piece of that called quality. Okay, we, we did that by this date, but what's the quality of that outcome? And so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I think... You know, we've seen a lot of institutions, especially liberal arts institutions, that have rolled back some programming. I can think a lot of them in the Midwest, in the area that I live in, that have rolled back programming. We've had universities cut their theater programs. We've had universities cut their feminist studies programs. We've had universities cut their humanities programs. You have to meet student need. If students aren't enrolling in those, Mm. there's still plenty of institutions that offer those. But as an English major, I had a bachelor's degree in literature. I was a heck of a reader and I was a heck of a thinker, but I knew I couldn't stop there because nobody was hanging a shingle out saying BA in English want to apply within. Yeah. I think it's super true that they're not mutually exclusive. I think, you know, I have a lot of admiration for community colleges' willingness to be innovative in this sense, because I think a lot of schools, they're rolling their class schedules from term to term. It's a very faculty-based model for deciding what, you know, class offerings are or what curriculum's going to be. I'd love to learn a little bit about how ICC is thinking about student-centric scheduling. And Oh, sure. I'd be happy to share that with you. Yeah. I'm definitely to cut you off, but we've, we've done some really good things. One of the things that we did first is we took, we had a strategic initiative. So, which means when you have a strategic initiative, again, this says this will be a priority and there will be budgeting that goes toward this. And there will be, and that includes includes human budgeting, time. There will be employees who have time to get this done. And so one of the things we did and was we started that strategic initiative many years ago, which I'm not marketing for Course Dog, but Course Dog was a player in that. You guys were the very <laughs> first step. You were the first step. Yeah. Because we we needed a piece of software that could do many things. Like you can buy a piece of software to do an online catalog, no problem. You can buy a piece of software that'll do curriculum, no problem. But we knew that if we were going to have, it wasn't just about student-centric scheduling. If we were going to have a student-centered model of education, scheduling was a piece of that that would come. And so you had to do long-term project planning. Started with a catalog. Okay, first let's get a catalog that's accessible and searchable for students. Got it. Check. Next, it started with we had a we had parallel initiatives that said, all right, we've got all these program layouts. When's the last time they were looked at? Oh, we'd say well, they were looked at two years ago. Yeah, but 
let's think about what were the measures? What were the outcomes that we wanted? We didn't have any. We just said, ah, check there, look that. No, 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 no. Let's look at them. Are these courses really offered or are we doing all these substitution of waivers? So we had to look at that. And then we had to look at, okay, now let's look at the curriculum. Is it the right curriculum with the right outcomes for the students? All right, now we got a curriculum set. Then we sent out student surveys about our schedule. You know, what do you want in scheduling? We were just brave and did it. And I, I actually wrote two of those surveys. And wow. we're in our third, we're in our third iteration of them because we're collecting three years worth of data. This is one of my final projects before I sunset. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank goodness. But we're we've got our third year of data that's coming in. We're getting ready to send the surveys again. But basically, we asked students, what do you want in the schedule? I mean, we we had some very specific questions, but that was the point of what when we knew what's what's the outcome we want? What do we want to know? We want to know. Are our students getting the schedule that they need, want, and desire? And are the courses offered at the right time in the right mode, at the right place? And so what we did is one of the things we found out, Justin, in all of this, in this student-centric scheduling model, was that we also took a look at other piece of data. My goodness, our program layouts are for students that are full-time. Hold on, 67% of our students are now part-time. Mm. And so we had to write part-time program layouts. Hmm. Again, and we've got, I know we're using CourseDog to help us out with this in terms of, you know, here's the program plan. Here's when the courses are offered, you know, and so that we can get Degree Planner up and running with the help of CourseDog. And that's on the move now. And one of the things we learned, and we knew it, like students had told us this before, but we didn't pay attention, is that students don't, first of all, the pandemic changed everything. But one of the things that didn't change is our students don't want to come to campus three times a week. They're too busy. They're going part time. They don't want to school three times. They want to come twice a week. So we've moved our courses to Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday. And then it also told us that many students said, um, you know what, I need more of a hybrid model of learning. I want to come to campus, you know, and then do part of my work online. And so this whole student centered model of education if you look back five years ago, our schedule looks nothing like it used to look. We've got more online courses, which are set at a particular pace. We've got ways of checking in with those students. We've got more hybrid courses. And most of our courses are now Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday. And interesting enough, students actually told us, we want to start earlier. You don't start till eight o'clock. How about seven or 7.30? We're up and going because we've already got our kids out the door. So we're now doing 7.30 classes. So this whole student-centered scheduling has taken us many years to get to, but we made it a priority. We made it a priority. And then we also did bands. You know, students said, I need to take so many general education courses to finish my degree, but I can't get them. Like I can get my psychology at 10 o'clock in the morning, but I can't get my math class till one in the afternoon. That doesn't work for me. So we started doing scheduling bands. Like, oh, look, you can be a morning student and get these gen eds. You can be an afternoon student and get these gen eds. And that's working. Students love it. It has increased our ability to serve students where they're at, and it's increased our ability to provide the services at the right time for students. Because mm. one of the other things students told us is, hey, you're doing all your, we need tutoring, but we got to go to campus, then we got to get back home or we got to get to a job. And I can't get back to school at night to get tutoring like I need it. So we started using Smart Thinking, which is a 24-hour program for tutoring. It's a great program, by the way, just little perk to smart thinking. There's a lot of them out there, but smart thinking was the right one for us. 
And then we also start doing virtual tutoring at night for students. We do virtual or two. Our busiest time for tutoring for our students are our virtual appointments. And that starts about, they happen all day long, but the ones students sign up for the most are from five o'clock until nine o'clock. And actually we're gonna, we're gonna increase our budget and try to serve students until 10 or 11 o'clock. We have flipped our model. Did it come with some pain? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> It comes with some scheduling pain for around the institution, not just for faculty, but for support staff as well. Because, you know, we said, hey, you're going to work from 8 till 4.30. And then we're suddenly like, "Mm, not so much. You work from 2.30 to 10.30. But it's work. People are happy to serve students. Jill, I think my last question for today is one of the hardest, what you touched on at the end there is change management, right? Mm -hmm. So many things that, Schools want to adopt, but there's obviously an enormous amount of institutional inertia. There's faculty friction. There's administrators who who have a particular way of doing things. You know, I just love to hear a little bit about what advice you would have for someone who's nervous about, you know, all of the change management that's associated with these types of changes, whether it's scheduling or creating an innovation office or rolling out more just-in-time learning modules. What advice based on your based on your time in 35, 35, 35 number wrong. I was a little nervous. The, 35, 35 years in higher education. What advice would you have on change management for, for folks who are administrators at, at universities or community colleges? First of all, acknowledge that you need it <laughs> right there. And secondly, get help, get help. There's lots of change management companies. We did. We use the ADCAR model and we had professional development around ADCAR and every project that we have has a product. We're, we're coming off being a Six Sigma institution. I was a Six Sigma black belt at ICC for three years. And so we still follow the lean Six Sigma principles. So that's been enculturated in this. But now we're moving toward change management, which has a lot in common with lean Six Sigma and Six Sigma. But everyone has goes through change management It's part of our onboarding process, the executive level, the management level, the director level, the coordinator level. We're all certified in change management. We have a change management office. You have to give it resources. Hmm. And so every project has a charter and every project has two project change managers that are not discipline experts on the team. Their role is just to help you with change management as you go through your project. And you cannot over-communicate. People cannot listen, but you cannot over-communicate. Our change management has involved differences in the way we communicate and how often we communicate. And it's also followed up with why. We're not just changing scheduling because we thought it would be fun. (laughs) Change management is about why. And it's about recognizing the pains that people will go through because there's no project ever done until you've really draped change management around that. And change management, it's it's an investment and it costs money, but it's worth every cent of it. Change management is, I feel like, such a loaded word for so many people, especially in higher education. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way that you're approaching it and the approach in general to accessibility. I'll close this out. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for your time here with us on the Academic Operations Podcast brought to you by Course Dog. Thank you everyone for listening in and uh, we hope to see you next time.
Thank you. Have a good day. Cool. Alrighty. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Course Dog. We empower academic administrators at more than 100 institutions with an integrated academic operations platform that supports on-time completions and operational excellence with academic and event scheduling, course demand projections, curriculum management, and online catalog solutions that integrate bi-directionally with your SIS. Learn more at CourseDog.com.